good morning again. Great to be with you all. Uh, if we haven't met before, my name is Matt. Uh, and this is our second week uh, meeting face to face again uh, in the park. And I have to say, we got a really good day for it. Uh, I don't think we'll get sunburned today. Uh, but it's great to be with you in person and uh, just, just kind of reflecting this morning on what a wild ride this has been uh, for us as a community uh, and obviously our city um, kind of humanity is so unique in that humanity wide we're, we're dealing with this thing and sort of being tried and tested. Uh, but all of us here this morning are, are part of that. We're all facing our own um, trials. We're all being tested in different ways. Uh, we're all um, being forced to kind of endure and exercise patience in the midst of what we're going through. Uh, but it's good to be here. And we are so grateful. My wife and I are so grateful for you guys and uh, this community that's forming, this community that we call home. Um, and we're just really happy to be here. So uh, we're continuing in our series this morning through the book of Galatians. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians 4 verse 21. And we'll pick up there in a moment. Uh, I've been thoroughly enjoying this uh, series that we've been in, in through the book of Galatians. Uh, most scholars think that Galatians was Paul's earliest letter uh, that we have in scripture. And I think it's so important, really my job and the job of uh, the elders and leaders here at the church is to equip you guys uh, for the work of the ministry. Uh, too often we think, oh, ministry is this, is, what ha is what's happening right now. Um, in my mind, this is just equipping uh, for the ministry that each one of us is called to live out uh, in our spheres of influence. And we think that this letter and this topic are so uh, central to the call that God has on each one of our lives. Uh, we think it's so important that we uh, soak ourselves, uh, ground ourselves in a proper understanding of God's grace. Uh, to let it really sink in and begin to permeate our thinking, that we would be grounded in a liberating and, and a proper understanding of God's grace so that it begins to uh, reflect in our attitudes and in our actions and in our experience of life. Uh, and so that's really been the heart behind this series, to understand the nature of God's grace. And we uh, continue on that journey this morning, picking up in Galatians 4, verse 21. Here is what it says. It says, tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh. But his son by the free woman was born as a result of a divine promise. These things are being taken figuratively. The women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children but the Jerusalem that is above is free and she is our mother. For it is written, be glad barren woman, you who never bore a child shout for joy and cry aloud. You who were never in labor because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now you brothers and sisters like Isaac 
are children of promise. At that time, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the spirit. It is the same now. But what does scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. Let's pray. Lord, as we uh, open up this passage written uh, thousands of years ago, uh, God, I pray that you would um, just help bring it to life in our hearts and our minds uh, and give us a proper understanding of how we stand before you. Uh, What should it feel like to come into your presence and be named by you? Uh, Would you uh, open our eyes to the deeper reality that has already been brought about through the cross, that is already true whether we recognize it or not. But Lord, we want to recognize it. We want our eyes to be open. So open them now in the power of your spirit and in Jesus' name. Amen. The uh, first century churches in Galatia are being thrown into confusion. Uh, Paul has established these churches through his preaching of the gospel, which the sort of truncated version for our purposes this morning would be that Christ died on our behalf to save us into God's family and to justify us. Meaning that in this process of Jesus dying for us, as we place our faith in him, our sin all gets attributed to him and what he's suffering through on the cross and his righteousness gets attributed, credited to us. Uh, We are declared righteous by the mystery of the cross. And thus, anyone who places their faith in Jesus undergoes this transformation, uh, receives the very righteousness of Christ, and and has this new, incredible, unshakable standing before God. So Paul is establishing these new communities centered around this gospel and Jesus, who is Lord. But then another group comes in, and this group of people Paul calls Judaizers. And they begin to muddle up the gospel. Uh, They come in and essentially say, hey, Paul only gave you part of the picture, uh, but he left out the law. And so we've come to introduce that. To follow Jesus, they would say, you have to be Jewish, and therefore you have to follow the law of Moses and all of the Jewish customs. Okay, so if you're on board with that as this new worshiping community, let's go ahead and get started. Why don't you get circumcised, which is this mark that you're part of the family of God, and then we'll start introducing you to all of the laws and customs that we follow. And these men who come in, uh, they're from Jerusalem. Uh, They come with this sense of authority. They have the full weight of cultural pressure in the ancient world. And thus, a lot of these early communities are thrown into confusion. Wait, what does it mean to follow Jesus? What should these new worshiping communities look like? How should we relate to the law? Why shouldn't we follow the law? And so the Judaizers are essentially saying as they come in, hey, we're the real deal. We're first class. You're second class. You're Gentiles. You're outsiders. You're newcomers. You're incomplete. And you need something more. You need to add to what Paul has done and given you. You need to add the law and you need to conform to us. 
And we don't know for sure, but the theory is that these Judaizers were actually pointing to Abraham and his two sons to make an argument for their case. Uh, It's not clear from the text, but they were probably coming into these new churches and saying something along the lines of, hey, look at Abraham. He had two sons, Isaac, who who, um, goes on to father the entire Jewish nation, and Ishmael. Who, who's eventually sent away. He's an outsider. He's a Gentile and the father of uh, the, the Arab nations. And you guys, you're part of the Gentiles. You're part of the outsiders. You're, you're like that illegitimate child of Abraham on the outside. And so what you need to do is take on the law of Moses, take on the Jewish customs, and then you can become first class then you can become a legitimate child of Abraham. Don't be Ishmael, be an Isaac, be Jewish in the full sense of the word. But then Paul comes in and he completely reverses that line of thinking. He takes that analogy or that argument and he flips it on its head. He says, no, 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 they've actually got it backwards. The Jews would like to think that they're Isaac but they're actually Ishmael. And if you're new to the Bible or the story of the scriptures, um, Abraham is this sort of central figure in the redemption story of God. And very early on, chapter 12 in your Bibles, uh, God calls Abraham and makes this covenant uh, of blessing with Abraham that's deeply rooted and related to his descendants. And, And so he's expecting descendants from him and his wife, Sarah, who will then function in this covenant blessing that God has promised. But it's not happening right away. And Abraham and Sarah are just getting older and older and older. And so rather than continuing to wait on God and trust in him, Abraham and his wife, Sarah, decide to force a child uh, through Sarah's slave girl, Hagar, which was a somewhat common practice in the ancient Near East. So Abraham sleeps with Hagar and the result is this child, Ishmael, a son who's born not according to faith or the promise of God, uh, but actually born according to a lack of faith, uh, born out of a a lack of trust. It's an act of desperation. Uh, It's an act of them trying to accomplish something in their own strength, in their own power. And Paul says, That's actually a great analogy for life under the law. Uh, That's more like the covenant that was formed at Mount Sinai. That covenant actually kept people in bondage under the law. And and under the law, you do works of the flesh. That's that's how you operate if you're under the law. Uh, you, You try to force things on your own strength and in your own power. Operating under the law, it doesn't require any faith. You just have a moral code and you do your best to follow it. It doesn't require trusting God. It's not the result of a divine promise. And it produces slaves. You become a slave to the law that you place yourself under. That's Mount Sinai, Paul says. That's, that's Old Covenant. That's Ishmael's stuff. But then there's Isaac. And Isaac comes later and he's the result of a divine promise. Uh, he is conceived by the power of the Spirit. 
as Abraham and Sarah lean on God and trust in God for this new life, for this impossible life. And Paul says, that's you, brothers and sisters. That, that's the new life that comes in the new covenant. You're not an Ishmael. You're not a slave under the law. You don't operate by works of the flesh. Your new life is a result of the Holy Spirit and divine promise. That's the basis of the new life that now dwells within you. That's the basis of your identity and who you are. It's an act of faith and an act of trust. We place our faith in Jesus and we trust him for our salvation right now in the present and into the future for all eternity. And, and Paul's saying this new life that's springing up in you, this new creation life, it wasn't the result of works of the flesh. It's not because you were super moral. You, it's not because you were striving. You didn't, you didn't earn it. It was brought about by the blood of Jesus and the power of the spirit. You, you could not possibly earn the righteousness which you now enjoy. You couldn't bring about new creation life or, or the rebirth that you've experienced any more than Sarah, who was 90, uh, could have brought forth new life. He says, if you go back and read the scriptures, it says her, her womb was as good as dead. And yet by this miracle of God, new life comes forth. And he says the same with you. It, before you knew Christ, you were as good as dead. You were dead in your sin. And yet it was the spirit and, and the power of the cross that actually brought about this rebirth, that brought about this new life in us. God is the one who miraculously conceives this new life, who brings about this new birth. And he's saying, so, so run that back through this analogy and experience with Abraham. If that's true, you aren't Ishmael, you're Isaac. You're this miracle life that's brought about by the power of the spirit and divine promise. You're the one who puts your faith and trust in God and trust his power at work within you. And then just to drive home the point a little further, Paul says, hey, the law was given at Mount Sinai in Arabia. Just think like geographically, where is that? Well, that's, that's Ishmael's territory. Arabia is where all of his descendants live. Uh, that that's that's Hagar and Ishmael, they were slaves, and and just like they were slaves, all of those who were under that covenant that was formed in Arabia, they're, they're stuck under the law. They're enslaved to the law, and just as historically Hagar and Ishmael persecuted uh, Sarah and Isaac, this life that came by the Spirit, he says it's the same today. The Jews are still stuck under this law that was formed in Arabia and Mount Sinai. They're still enslaved to that. And they've come here to this new worshiping community to persecute us. But don't be fooled. Remember what happened in the story of Abraham. Though they seem to have the upper hand, what happens in the end is that they're sent away. The covenant blessing of Abraham, it doesn't flow through Ishmael. It, it flows through Isaac. It flows through the child of the promise and the other is sent away. They didn't share in the inheritance and the incredible blessing that came with the covenant of Abraham. And he said that it's the same today. Those who are relying on works of the law and persecuting those who are born of the spirit, 
um, aren't the true people of God. That they're not, they're not operating. They might be ethnically, uh, genetically related to Abraham, but they're actually not true children of Abraham. The true children of Abraham are the ones who operate in this new covenant blessing, who, who have this spirit life at work within them, who live by faith. They're actually the true children of Abraham. They will inherit the great promises of God. This is just as the current Jerusalem, uh, it's in bondage under all of that stuff. But the heavenly Jerusalem that we can't see, she's free. And and before Christ came, this heavenly Jerusalem, it didn't have any offspring. Um, And yet in the wake of Christ, in the wake of the cross and his death and burial and resurrection and the coming of the Holy Spirit, now all of a sudden the, the heavenly Jerusalem has has millions, has billions of offspring around the world who are the true children of Abraham. But it didn't come by works of the flesh. It didn't come by operating under the law, by striving in self-effort. It came through divine promise and the power of the Spirit. And it's important that we get this right because there are some Christians uh, who actually get confused on this topic. Are we old covenant or are we new covenant? Are we to follow the law that we read in the Old Testament or are we no longer under that law? How should we relate to it? I mean, it's a really good and righteous law. The Ten Commandments are really good stuff. We haven't been able to improve upon that law even after thousands of years but perhaps we should just keep a bit of the law. Like, wouldn't it be safer if we didn't throw it out entirely? Uh, Perhaps we could just hold on to a bit of it. But Paul says that the law brought death. And in the words of Terry Virgo, we don't need a bit of death in his English accent. We we don't need a bit of death. It's not that we need some of the law It's not that we live under the best laws. We are no longer under the law. The law to live under the law is to live in slavery. It is to bring about death. Uh, It's part of the old covenant. And the fruit of that covenant was actually slaves, not sons and daughters. But notice that legalism, which many Christian communities wrestle with, is actually a matter of identity. Figuring out how we should relate to the law and the slavery that it brings and the condemnation that it brings in our lives is actually a matter of identity. Paul says, hey, when you were under age, you were under the authority of a tutor, a nanny, a guardian, a guide. Humanity and the people of God were locked up in custody under the law. Not so anymore. The law hasn't changed. It's still there. It hasn't changed a bit. But you and I have changed because of the coming of Christ, because of the cross, because of the resurrection, because of the coming of the Spirit. We have changed. We've been reborn. We've been set free. You're no longer under age and under the authority of the law. Christ came to set you free from all of that, to set you free from the law and its condemnation. And this actually becomes a matter of daily importance to us. 
Because the scriptures say that Satan, the great enemy of God, is, is also known as the accuser, that, that he accuses the people of God day and night, night and day. That, which means that, that as a result of being a human being, an image bearer of God in God's created world, and, and as a result of belonging to God, being part of the people of God, we will face accusation. Like that's something that we will experience sometimes even on a daily basis. That accusation is going to come. But, but how do we deal with that accusation? What do we do in our hearts, in our minds, when, when we finish praying or we finish reading our Bible and, and the accuser comes and says, oh, is that it? Really? Like that's, that's all you're going to do today? Did, did you even understand anything that you read in your Bible? Did that really have an impact on you? Or, or, or let's say it's not one of the spiritual disciplines or some sort of religious activity. Let's say that we, we sin and we know it. Like we, we know this thing is sin. We know before we do it, but we do it anyways. Okay? The scriptures say if we claim to be without sin, then, then we're actually deceiving ourselves and those around us. Right? So, so when that happens as a result of being human in a fallen world, what happens next? Because the accuser is right there bringing accusation. Ah, oh, that's just who you are. You're dirty. You're broken. You're a sinner. You're just acting out your true nature. Why would you pretend to be any different? You're a terrible Christian. You're a terrible human being. And if we aren't careful, we believe that voice. Uh, in, in fact, many of you here this morning might be walking around with this subtle sense of, wow, I'm just not a good human being. <laughs> I'm, I'm just not a very good Christian. I'm not, I'm not good at this. I really ought to sin less and I really ought to read my Bible more and pray more and give more and serve more and whatever else. And if we aren't careful, we end up walking around with the very sense of condemnation that Christ died to free us from. Wherever, whenever we find ourselves concluding, hey, I'm just not a good Christian, or I really ought to do this thing or that thing, uh, those, those ought to be triggers for us. We ought to pause in that moment to take that thought captive uh, and, and ask, hey, where does that come from? What do I mean by the fact that I ought to do that thing? Who am I trying to please? What law am I living under? What am I trying to prove? What do I mean by the fact that I'm not a good Christian? Am I living under the law? Am I acting like a servant or a slave instead of a son or a daughter. Because in my opinion, a good Christian or a successful Christian is just someone who knows who they are in Christ. That, that, that's what victory looks like. That's how, we, that's how we walk in victory. 
actually starts with knowledge. It's knowing who we are in Christ, uh, what he's done for us, and, and what it means. We know successful, successfully, a successful Christian just knows, hey, I'm a child of the promise. I'm an Isaac. The, the, the real life that has taken root in me is a result of the spirit and divine promise, and it has changed my identity. God says that you are now a son or a daughter. God says that you are justified, that you are set free, that you are abounding in life, that you are overflowing with the very righteousness of Christ. And the problem is that we tend to agree with Satan and see things on his terms. It just feels easier to grasp. It's just more logical in our eyes. The accuser seems to raise some really good points. And so God says, hey, you have a perfect and spotless righteousness in Christ. And what we think in our minds is, well, I know that's what God says, but I know better. We all know that that's not actually the case. We all know that I keep messing up. We all know that I'm a failure. We all know that I'm a miserable sinner. The problem is that God never says those things about you. And we tend to act like there's another truth, a deeper truth, uh, but in reality, there is no greater truth than God's truth. There is no truer way to see reality than the way that God... It's not that God sees things one way and reality is actually something different. It's not that God has tricked himself or blinded himself to the way that things actually are. He actually sees the most accurate perspective. He... he is the truth. He knows the truth. He's, he's the grounding of all reality. So there is no truer way of seeing yourself than the way that God sees you. But too often when accusation comes in my life, I, I, my gut reaction is to respond with works of the law. Hey, I'll do better. I'll try harder. I promise never to commit that sin again. Whatever it is, I'll be more moral. But all of a sudden, in, in a moment, in an instant, we, we slip back into slavery. We, we, bec we, we start acting like Ishmael. Struggling under the law, under condemnation, cycles of sin and regret and guilt and trying harder and coming up with excuses and coming up short and failing again and cycling back through again. Endless cycles of self-effort and self-striving and legalism and condemnation and regret. And Paul says, no, you are home you are free, you are dry. In the words of Jesus on the cross, it is finished. 
It's done. It's complete. You have the righteousness of Christ in the power of the cross. You are a child of God, made righteous by his blood. And so you rest now, not in your morality, not on any form of moral code, not in your own strength or what you can accomplish under the law. That's Ishmael's stuff. That's not who you are. And besides, the people who go that route, they don't actually share in the rich inheritance of God. Instead, we rest in Christ by faith. You trust in God and what he says about reality, what he says about who you are. You remember that you are a child of the promise, offspring of the heavenly Jerusalem, brought about through divine promise and the power of the spirit, and that the law has nothing left to say to you. Let's pray. Jesus, we, we honor you this morning, Lord. Uh, we just come confessing that we want uh, more of you and less of ourselves. Um, I am the first to confess that I can be such an obstacle in my own pursuit of you. And so we, we, in a sense, Lord, we set ourselves aside. We commit to thinking about ourselves less as we focus on you more. Or as Paul says, I must become less so he can become greater. And Lord, we do that even now in worship as we turn our hearts, our minds, our eyes toward you. Um, in, in the midst of this crazy world, Lord, I, I pray that even now as we just worship together in this open space in the park, that we would just sense you whispering fresh words of identity over us. No, it's really true. You are a son. You are a daughter. You are righteous. You are spotless. You are justified. You are set free. You're free from the power of sin. You're free from the power of the law. God, as we seek your face in this place, would you just whisper those words of identity? Whatever it is that each person needs to hear this morning, would we have eyes to see? Would we have ears to hear uh, what the Spirit says to the church? Would, would we be open to what you want to whisper over our lives? Because we know, Lord, that you've come not to condemn the world, not to judge the world, but to set us free. Free from the fear of hell, free from the fear of failure, free from the power of sin, free from the power of the law, free from condemnation, free from accusation. Lord, you have made us the most free people in the world. Would, would you show us what it looks like as we seek you now to walk in that freedom? In Jesus' name, amen.